Well, it's super good to be back with you. I was here about 10 months ago, and I've learned one thing since then. Don't let Oliver introduce you. No, it's good. Oliver is like family, and I treat his kids kind of like my nieces and nephews. So I feel like I'm part of his, uh, part of his family. It's good to be with you this morning. We're going to be in Philippians 1, 18 to 26. I'm going to read our passage before we start. So if you would, go ahead and turn with me to Philippians 1, 18 through 26. We'll read it, and then I'll pray, and we'll... See what God has in store for us this morning. Philippians 1, starting in just the last five words of verse 18. This is the inspired word of God. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ according to my earnest expectation and hope, that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose. But I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. Thus reads the Word of God. Why don't you bow with me? Father, no man can preach your word with any power without the Holy Spirit. Would you empower me to preach rightly this divine word? Amen. Epitaphs. What they write on your tombstone when you die. That summary statement of your life It captures the person you were and the life that you lived. Some of them are meant to be humorous, like this one in Uniontown, Pennsylvania. Here lies the body of Jonathan Blake, stepped on the gas instead of the brake. Or this one from Ribbisford, England. The children of Israel wanted manna, well, wanted bread, and the Lord sent them manna. Old clerk Wallace wanted a wife, and the devil sent him Anna. Or this one from Thermont, Maryland. Here lies an atheist, all dressed up and nowhere to go. Of course, some epitaphs are meant to be 
much more sober. For the unnamed girl who died at 17, her tombstone read this, Sleep soft in dust until the Almighty will, then rise unchanged and be an angel still. Frank Sinatra's tombstone says this, Beloved husband and father, the best is yet to come. Or Martin Luther King Jr.'s tombstone, which says this, Free at last, free at last, thank God Almighty, I'm free at last. Epitaphs. I wonder what they'll write on your tombstone when you die. How will they capture the significance of your life in one simple statement? Here lies John, devoted father, loving husband, successful businessman. Here lies Mary. She was a free spirit, and she lived life her way. Or here lies Clark. He always made us laugh. Well, I think I know what they would write on the tombstone for the Apostle Paul. I think I know what his epitaph may have been because it very well may be that it's recorded here in our passage this morning. The essence of Paul's life, summarized powerfully and poignantly in one simple sentence. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. You see, Christ was everything to Paul. Christ was his master and his mission. Christ was his love and his life. Christ was his purpose and his passion. Christ was all to the Apostle Paul. That's how he could write a letter like Philippians. A letter dripping with the sweet honey of divine joy. A letter where the word joy or rejoice appears some 16 times. It glitters like gold dust on every page, rising like a sweet perfume from nearly every paragraph. And that pervasive joy found in this little letter is all the more remarkable when you consider that Paul pinned Philippians while imprisoned in Rome. Paul wrote the very words of Philippians while chained to a Roman guard under house arrest. He says in chapter 1, verse 13, that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Yes, Paul suffered as a Christian for the cause of Christ. And yet he maintained his joy. But as if that wasn't enough, suffering for the cause of Christ while in prison, he had jealous preachers seeking to defame him and discredit him because they were jealous of the scope of his ministry. He says in chapter 1, verse 17, they're thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. So how do you think the Apostle Paul would respond to circumstances like that, to detractors and critics like that? Does he sulk and pity? Does he grow 
people and murmur and complain about his lamentable condition? Does he lash out in anger? Put them in their place? No. No, the Apostle Paul abounds in joy because Christ is still being proclaimed. He says in verse 18 of chapter 1, only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. He rejoices in the midst of it all. Pain, pressure, persecution. I rejoice, says Paul. He doesn't lose hope. doesn't sink into despair. He rises above it like the sun rising above storm clouds. And Paul radiates this abundant joy. And you kind of have to ask the question, how does Paul maintain joy in the midst of intense adversity? Of this awful opposition? How does he maintain his joy? What is his secret? Well, Paul could write a letter like Philippians, bursting with joy, because his joy was not tethered to this life. Paul's joy wasn't anchored in circumstance, wasn't anchored in his situation, in his fame, in his followers. No. Paul's joy was rooted in his relationship with Jesus Christ. And as long as Christ was magnified through Paul's life, then Paul was electrified by divine joy coming down from heaven. That's what we discover in our passage this morning. In Philippians 1, 18 through 26. We see the catalysts for Paul's boundless joy. And it was his relentless pursuit of the glory and honor of Jesus Christ. And it was that relentless pursuit that enabled him to sail beyond the threat of death and the sacrifices of ministry with irrepressible joy. Joy that we will see leap off the pages in this text. And it's my hope that after we walk through Paul's joy, it will rub off on you. So that no matter what you face in your life, you too will have this spirit of enthusiastic, energetic joy. We're going to approach this text in two very simple phases, or parts, you could say. Part one, Paul's joy in martyrdom. Paul's joy in martyrdom. Part two, Paul's joy in ministry. So let's pick up that first part. Paul's joy in martyrdom with those last words of verse 18. Yes, and I will rejoice. I will rejoice even though I'm in prison. I will rejoice even though I may be executed at any moment. I will rejoice even though I have jealous preachers seeking to ruin my ministry and my reputation. I will rejoice. And he gives us the reason why in verses 19 through 21. He explains how he can soar through the troubles of his life and his very present circumstances and yet maintain 
seemingly limitless joy. And you have to wonder, if Paul is waiting in prison, chained to a Roman guard, expecting at any moment for the messenger to come in and say, Nero has decided to execute you, how can Paul maintain joy? The answer begins in verse 19. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Here Paul expresses confidence that no matter what is happening in his present condition, no matter his imprisonment, no matter his pain, no matter those detractors seeking to defame him and spread lies about him, irrespective of everything that's happening in his life, he says, I'm confident of this, God is going to deliver me. Now that word deliverance in the New Testament has a few different meanings. It can mean escape, escape from some trouble. It can mean physical well-being. And it can mean spiritual salvation, kind of ultimate salvation where we're reunited with God in heaven. And I think when Paul uses the word deliverance right here, he's got a bit of all three of those included in his mind. Because Paul knows no matter what happens here on this life, it's just temporary. Whatever I suffer now is temporary. It will expire at some point. God will deliver me, and he's either going to deliver me presently through release from prison or through an execution. But either way, at the end of my road lies the Savior and my salvation. I don't know how it's going to turn out, but I'm confident I'll be delivered. And I know what the ultimate end of my life is. I will be with God in heaven. I will have communion with Christ. And his cause for joy here, really his cause for confidence, he says is firmly grounded in two realities. At the end of verse 19, he says, Your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Maybe more than anybody in the entire New Testament, except for Jesus, Paul recognized the importance of prayer and the Holy Spirit's enabling. So he starts with prayer, and he knows that prayer moves mountains. That prayer makes possible the impossible. That prayer calls down, as it were, the very power of God to act on our behalf. And that word prayer... In the Greek, it speaks of an urgent need. And it comes from a verb that originally meant to have an audience with the king. And Paul uses that word because he knows exactly what prayer is. Prayer enables you, the intercessor, intercessor, to, as it were, be ushered into the kingdom of God. The very presence of the king of kings, and you lay your petition down at his feet, and you say, come to my aid. That's what prayer was. So Paul says, I'm trusting in your prayers. Maybe he remembered the story of Peter in Acts 12, where Peter had been arrested by King Herod, thrown in prison and awaiting execution. But Acts 12.5 says, earnest prayer 
for him was made to God by the church. You remember what happened in response to those prayers? The night before Peter's execution, God sends an angel. The angel goes, knocks the bonds off of Peter's wrists, flings open that cell door, and then he escorts Peter right out of that prison. Right into freedom. Maybe Paul has that in his mind when he says, through your prayers. Because he knows the power of prayer. And I think it's worth just pausing for a moment because there's a lesson for us in this. Even the Apostle Paul, the great Apostle Paul, if he needs intercessory prayers, how much more do we? So let me ask you, how much time do you spend praying for your brothers and sisters in Christ at this church? How often do you approach the king of everything and you say, God, I bring the need of my dear brother, my dear sister, would you come to his or her aid? How often do you pray that their love for Christ would be strengthened? Their faith would be built. Their attraction to sin would be weakened. If Paul needed intercessory prayer, how much more does our spiritual health and well-being depend on the faithful intercession of our brothers and sisters in this church? It wasn't simply prayer, though, that Paul was relying upon. He says, no, the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. In other words, he's saying, I need the Holy Spirit's empowerment. I need the Holy Spirit to give me what I simply don't possess on my own. I need divine strength to last. Divine encouragement to last. Divine faith to last. And the Holy Spirit lavishly supplies what the believer needs. So Paul is confident that if he maintains his trust in the Holy Spirit's enabling, the Holy Spirit would see him through. Which is why he can say in verse 20, I will not be put to shame in anything. Which is to say, my hope won't be disappointed. My faith in Christ will not be in vain. I don't know how he's going to work out my situation, but I know my trust in Jesus cannot be in vain. He will prove it. So Paul says, I won't be put to shame in anything. Not only will he not be put to shame in anything, but as the latter half of that verse says, Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. That word exalted, if you were to look it up, it has the idea of making something great, to enlarge something, to make it conspicuous, or to give something praise and glory. Oliver had mentioned that we met back in Los Angeles, and uh, I spent six years there. One of the places I loved to visit was the Griffith Observatory in L.A. So it's this observatory perched right there on the Hollywood Hills, magnificent view of the city, and this sort of unobstructed view of the sky. 
So on the weekends, what they would do is these junior astronomers would come to the Griffith Observatory. When the sun falls and the night sky sets in, then they'd set up their telescopes on the lawn. Powerful telescopes. And they would just let regular people come and view the stars. And it was amazing how when you viewed the stars through the magnification of the telescope, what was just a pinprick of light suddenly loomed large before you in all of its beauty and splendor and sort of sparkling glory. That was Paul's mission in life. To live in such a way that people could see his life and his behavior and think, his God is so great. His God is so glorious and splendid. Paul was all about putting Jesus Christ on display. It was never about Paul. Not about his fame. Not about his reputation. Not about his prestige. That stuff meant nothing to Paul. He lived and breathed to honor Jesus Christ. That was the engine powering his joy a relentless pursuit for the glory and honor of Christ. And it's only a man with that sort of single-minded attention who could, with any kind of authenticity, write verse 21. Look with me now at verse 21. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. You want to know what Paul's epitaph would be? That would be the Apostle Paul's epitaph. That was his summum bonum, right? His highest and greatest good. His raison d'etre, his reason for existence. For Beethoven, oh, his reason for existence was music. For Picasso, it was art. For Hemingway, it was literature. For Paul, it was the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why he lived. One commentator ex explains that, that sentence, verse 21, like this. Christ had become for him the motive of his actions, the goal of his life and ministry, the source of his strength. Can we say the same. For to me, to live is Christ. And you should know that when Paul says to live is Christ, he doesn't mean this is something I came up with in prison because I got nothing else to do. That word in the Greek has the idea of a continuous action. It doesn't stop. Ongoing. So he's saying, my day-to-day -day reality that which is true moment by moment by moment in my life is that I live for Christ. It defines my existence. But you have to ask, okay, Paul, to live is Christ. What does that mean in practice? Because he doesn't actually explain it. He doesn't elaborate. 
But if you look at his other writings, Paul gives you some insight in what it means to live as Christ. To live as Christ means to derive one's strength from Christ. Philippians 4.13. To live as Christ means you have the humble attitude of Christ. Philippians 2, 5 through 11. To live as Christ means to forsake the world and prize Jesus alone. Philippians 3, 8. To live as Christ means to trust in Jesus and be covered by his righteousness. Philippians 3, 9. To live as Christ means to rejoice in Christ. Philippians 3, 1 and 4, 4. To live as Christ means to live for the glory of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.15. And to live as Christ means to be crucified with him and let the power of Jesus be on display in your life. Galatians 2.20. But that's only half of the equation. He says to live is Christ and to die is gain. And that's sort of where we... uh, we kind of have a little bit of a struggle with that. What do you mean to die is gain? Because I think if Paul had said, for to me, to live is gain and to die in Christ, then we would say, well, sure, Paul, we get that. We understand that. We feel the same way as you. Live is gain. Die, you be with Christ in heaven. But that's not what he said. He said to die is gain. And so we, we struggle to understand how death could be gain. I don't think Paul knew what it was like to live in America in the 21st century, right? Death is gain? When you have a world of entertainment at your fingertips, endless amusement available to you 24-7, and death is gain? I don't know about that, Paul. Maybe Paul says to die is gain because for him it was gain, because his life was so hard. Maybe death was gain because this life was almost not worth living based on what he endured. Come on, you remember what he says in the New Testament, right? Acts 20, 23. The Holy Spirit testifies to me that in every city bonds and afflictions await me. He says in 2 Corinthians 6, 5, in everything, commending ourselves as servants of God, and listen to this, in much endurance, in afflictions, in hardships, in difficulties, in beatings, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, in hunger. But then he goes on in chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians, verses 23 to 29, beaten times without number, often in danger of death, Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A day and the night I've spent in the deep. So no wonder Paul could say to die is gain. Because listen to what he endured. Yeah, I think if I lived Paul's life, I would think death was gain too. So is that what's in the mind of Paul here when he says death is gain? I just can't get away from my problems. I think we all know the answer to that is no. Paul's not saying death is gain because this world is just so mean to me. 
He's saying, death is gain because when I die, I experience perfect, uninterrupted, undistracted communion with my Savior. The Scottish pastor, Robert Murray McShane, he knew what Paul was talking about. That's how he could write this. Be as much as you can with God. I declare to you that I had rather be one hour with God than a thousand with the sweetest society on earth or in heaven. All other joys are but streams. God is the fountain. That's what Paul was after. Not the trickling streams of this world. He was after the eternal fountain of God. That's what he lived for. That's what fueled and energized and motivated his life of joy. A man came up to R.E. Gladstone when he was the Prime Minister of England. Young man, he comes up to the Prime Minister and says, Mr. Gladstone, I would like a few moments of your time. I would like to discuss my life with you and my plans. You see, I plan to study law. Yes, said the statesman. What then? Well, then I would like to get a place for the, in the bar of England, gain entrance. Well, yes, young man, what then? Well, then, sir, I hope to have a place in Parliament and the House of Lords. To which Gladstone replied, Yes, young man, what then? And the man said, Well, then I hope to do great things for Britain. Yes, young man, what then? And the young man said, Well, then I hope to retire and enjoy the rest of my life. And to which Gladstone said, Yes, young man, what then? Well, then, Mr. Gladstone, I suppose I will die. To which Gladstone said, Yes, young man, what then? A bit flummoxed, the man said, Well, I don't, I've not considered further than that. To which Gladstone replied, Young man, you are a fool. Go home and think through your life. And I think we know what he meant, don't we? Have you thought through your life? Have you thought through what it is you're living for? Let me just give a little bit of a, a mental exercise for you. So put a phrase, put a blank rather after the phrase, to live is. Then another blank after the phrase, to die is. Think about the implications of what this will mean. Let me give you some examples. If you say to live is family, you must also say to die is separation. If you say to live is money, you must also say to die is loss. If you say to live is success, you must also say to die is failure. If you say to live is pleasure, then you must say to die is emptiness. If you say anything other 
than to live as Christ. You must necessarily say to die is loss. The only way any of us could ever say to die is gain is if we say to live as Christ. But if you can say with Paul, to live is Christ, then you, my friend, have found the secret to unending joy. But I would be remiss if I didn't acknowledge in a room this size that there may be some who couldn't with any sincerity say to live is Christ. Because for you to live isn't Christ. For you to live is self. To live is your career. To live is money. To live is retirement. To live is pleasure. To live is travel. To live is whatever thrills your heart. But you have to know that the end of your equation will say to die is hell. And so let me just ask you, what could this world possibly offer you that's better than Jesus Christ? What could this world give you that's more precious than Jesus Christ? From the lips of Jesus come the words, what will a man give in exchange for his soul? What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? This world has nothing of eternal value apart from Jesus Christ. So if you can't say to live as Christ because Christ is not a priority for you, because He's not a Savior for you, then you need to hear the words of the Bible which says, today is the day of salvation. Today you must repent. Today you must believe. Today the gates of heaven are open. Today, Jesus stands ready to welcome you in. But tomorrow, they may be closed to you. So, I want you to be able to say, to live is Christ and to die is gain. But you can only say that if Jesus is Savior. Well, let's explore now this second part of the text. Let's move from Paul's joy in martyrdom to his joy in ministry. And that starts in verse 22. Verse 22. But if I am to live on in the flesh, which simply means if God grants me more life, if I have more days, more hours to spend on this planet, if that is true, then, says verse 22, this will mean fruitful labor for me. You have to love Paul. He says, listen, if I get out of here, all I'm going to do is pursue fruitful work for the cause of Christ. I'm going to seek to advance the light of the gospel into dark places. He was like a horse with blinders on. All he saw was gospel ministry. He's like a bulldog with a bone, and he wasn't about to let go of his usefulness for Christ as long as God gave him breath to draw on. Now notice what Paul didn't say here. Paul didn't say, if I get out of this thing alive, I'm finally going to get me that place 
on the Mediterranean coast, that little beach house where I can spend the last of my years soaking up some sun, sand, and surf. I'm going to relax and enjoy because I've spent my whole life laboring for God. I think I've earned a little R&R. Listen, if Paul said that, none of us would say, what do you mean, Paul? We would say, we affirm that, Paul. You of all men deserve it. You have paid the price with your blood. Your back is ribboned with scars from beatings and rods. You, Paul, deserve that. I'll even help you finance it. Where do I send the check? Surely, Paul, you deserve some relaxation. You've labored long enough. That's not what Paul thought at all. He says, no, it's going to be fruitful labor for me. Because he believed what Jesus says in John 15, 8, that my Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit. And because his life was all about bearing fruit and glorifying God, he says, if these prison doors swing open, I'm going to march back into the city and I am going to work for Christ because I love him he died on the cross for me what else could I do he's my savior I'm gonna I'm gonna work hard I'm gonna bear fruit you might say well what does fruitful labor look like for a man like Paul what does he have in mind if he gets out what does his fruitful labor entail Well, it probably meant the fruit of winning souls through evangelism. Because he talks about that in Romans 13, 1.13. It probably meant the fruit of planting churches where Christ has not yet been named. Because he also talks about that in Romans 15.20. Now it probably meant the fruit of building into other Christians so that their lives manifest the fruits of the Spirit because he talks about that in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. That's what Paul was thinking. If I get out of here, that's what I'm doing with the rest of my life. And as wonderful as those things are, and as attractive as they are to Paul, yet the rest of these verses portray a man who's still conflicted in his heart. Look with me at verse 23. Just listen to what he says. But I am hard-pressed from both directions. Well, hard-pressed from which directions, Paul? Well, on the one hand, I want to depart and be with Christ. I want uninterrupted communion with my Savior. But on the other hand, I care about you, Philippians. I love you. I want your best spiritually. So I'm, I also feel like I want to stay and be with you. So I'm hard-pressed which in the original language has the idea of someone being crushed between two massive forces, smashing him on this side and smashing him on this side. And he says, my desire is to depart and be with Christ. That's one of the crushing forces he's feeling right now. And that word depart is, is rich and it gives us insight into Paul's mindset here. So the word depart, it was used by sailors to mean to unloose the ship and set sail. 
It was used by politicians to talk about setting a prisoner free. It was used by soldiers to say, let's pack up the tent and move on. It was used by farmers to say, let's unyoke these oxen. That's what Paul was thinking. I am ready to trade in this fleshly tent of my body and get my heavenly one, which is permanent. I'm ready to cut my boat loose and set sail across those glassy seas and land on the far golden shores of heaven. I'm ready to escape the prison of this world and all its pain and sorrow and stroll into that glorious freedom of paradise. I'm ready to drop this heavy burden of ministry and accept that rest which Jesus Christ offers me. That, he says, is far better. Far better because here on earth Paul was absent from Christ but there in heaven, he would never leave his side. Far better because here his joy was mixed with the bitter herbs of sorrow and pain. But there in heaven, his joy would be pure and unadulterated. Far better because here his suffering seemed interminable, never ending. But in heaven, his peace would truly be eternal. Far better because here he battled indwelling sin. But there in heaven, he would be gloriously, perfectly, permanently holy. So Paul says, yes, yes, to depart and be with Christ is far better. It's kind of like he was homesick for heaven. And Paul, in expressing this, is so unlike us most of the time. Because most of us, we're not ready to depart. We do everything we can to stay longer. We swallow our vitamins with breakfast in the morning, rub on that anti-aging cream. We're careful with what we eat, no sweets or or fats, and we want to not miss a workout. Try to get those eight hours of beauty sleep because, hey, the older you get, the harder it is to keep that beauty. And we do everything we can to optimize our health today so we can maximize our future. Because we're not ready to go. If we're honest, we really like life here. And it's not that we're supposed to hate this world. God has gifted us with so many wonderful things. But often, for us, the wondrous things of the world become far more compelling than the wondrous treasures of heaven. So we say, not yet, Jesus. Delay longer. Delay longer. I just want to get married. I just want to have grandkids. I just want to retire and get that lake house. So maybe just delay a little longer. That's not what Paul thought. No, he longed for the pearly gates up yonder. Longed for that embrace from his Savior. He says, "Mm, to depart and be with Christ far better. Is that the cry of your heart? Is it truly 
in your heart better to depart even now and be with Christ. Far better than a six-figure salary in a fancy house. Far better than a husband or wife who adores you and obedient, perfect little children. Far better than a big bank account and an early retirement and the freedom to do whatever you want. Is it far better to depart and be with Christ than those things? Well, as much as Paul wanted to go and just be with Christ now, yet he says in verse 24, to remain in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. And those last three words say it all. Look with me at again. The last three words of verse 24. For your sake. It wasn't about him, it was about them. Paul says, it's more important that I delay heaven and the glories of heaven so that I can stay and help you grow as a Christian, help you mature in your faith, help you walk more diligently with Christ, love Him more, yearn for Him more, exhibit His life and His perfections in your behavior. That's better that I stay and help you do that for your sake, not for my sake. Not for my sake. I hope, I hope you're challenged by the others, other-centeredness of Paul. His supreme other-centeredness. For your sake, Philippians. For your sake. Is it any wonder that it was Paul who wrote Philippians 2, 5 through 11? That section that, that lifts up Christ as the supreme example of selflessness? Is it any wonder that Paul was the guy who got to write those words? Because Paul was the guy who lived and breathed out that truth in his daily life. For your sake. I can't think of anyone other than the Savior who so well embodied the two greatest commands from Mark 12, 28 to 31, which says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. That is what Paul was. That was who he was. And so he says, no, it's, it's more valuable and necessary that I stay for your sake. Look at verse 25. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. Listen, he didn't get an angel who came to him and said, Paul, God sent me to tell you you're going to stay. He's just reasoning through this in his own mind. And he's saying, listen, I see the exceeding benefit of me staying and helping you grow in Christ. So I'm pretty sure that's what God's going to do. He's going to keep me here for more time so that I can help you grow. And he says, notice this, for your progress and joy in the faith. That word progress has to do with um, an army sending out kind of an advanced party 
of engineers to blaze a trail through the wilderness so the army can march on through. So Paul's saying, listen, I'm going to stick around for your spiritual well-being so that you will advance into new territory spiritually because you're growing in your faith, in your godliness, in your righteousness. You're going to reach new heights of holiness and I'm going to be there by your side to help you get there. And notice how Paul's joy in the ministry will result in their joy and maturity. Because he says, for your progress and joy in the faith. And again, he doesn't say, for my progress and joy. He says, for yours. Because it's all about you. It's all about loving Christ and loving his people. And it's amazing how in God's economy, when you do it God's way, when you spend your life for the sake of others, for the glory of Christ, then the one who gives gets the joy. Paul had the joy of ministry. And the one who grows gets the joy, the joy of maturity. And then look how it's all going to end. Verse 26. So that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. I like how the ESV renders this. Just listen. So that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus. Isn't that what Paul was all about? Christ getting the glory and honor? So he says, listen, I'm pretty confident this is going to work itself out. So I'm going to get released. And you know who's going to get glorified? Not me. Jesus. Christ is going to get the glory. Because you're going to rejoice that God got me out. And you're going to rejoice at what God does through me in your hearts. And you're not going to praise Paul. You're going to praise the Savior. And Jesus is going to get the glory. That's the joy of ministry for Paul. Their growth, Christ's glory. Long time ago, there was a missionary in China by the name of Bill Wallace. He was a doctor, he ministered faithfully there, and after at, at some length, he was arrested by the communists brutally interrogated, thrown into a prison. Well, the horrors continued for him, the beatings, the pain, the privation, and the only way that he could maintain his sanity was to scribble Bible verses on the wall of his cell. One of the verses that he scribbled and looked at over and over and over and over again was Philippians 1.21. For to me is Christ, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But he had a frail body. And in time, the beatings took their toll. He died right there in that cell. The Chinese, the communists said, oh, he, he committed suicide, but the wounds on his body was plain. He was beaten to death. His friends retrieved the body. They buried him with honor. Do you know what they inscribed on his tombstone? 
for to me to live is Christ. Don't you want that to be inscribed on your tombstone? Don't you want people to remember your lasting legacy as a man or a woman who lived for Christ? Well, you can. And the Apostle Paul shows us how in this text. You live for Christ when you are possessed by a single idea to pursue with relentless passion the glory and honor of Jesus Christ. When you live that way, they're going to inscribe on your tombstone. For to me, to live is Christ. Why don't you pray with me? Father, that's a work that we cannot do in the strength of our flesh. You must do that within us through the power of the Holy Spirit. We want to be a people who live for Christ, but God, we're so, so weak in our flesh. Sin trips us and traps us. Temptations are always there. Distractions, allurements. But I ask that you would do this precious work in our hearts, that we would live for the glory and honor of Jesus Christ, because he alone is infinitely worthy. I want you to do that starting this very day by the power of your Holy Spirit for the glory of your perfect Son.